Welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, editor at Agents of Change and the senior editor at Environmental Health News. If you are new here, welcome. You have found the podcast to hear from the up-and-coming leaders in the environmental justice field. We are usually here every other Wednesday, but for the next couple of months, we will bring you some extra episodes on the environmental issues of the day. So please find us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Carlos Gould, a senior fellow and assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego School of Public Health. Gould studies the relationships between energy, air pollution, and health, and has recently published multiple studies looking at how increasing wildfire smoke is affecting our air and our health. The studies come as 2023 has seen record-breaking wildfire, including at times and in places that we don't expect. If you're listening to this, you were probably impacted by wildfire smoke this year. I know I was. Gould talks about the ways wildfire smoke impacts our health, how those impacts hit certain communities harder than others, how wildfires are setting back progress in clean air across the U.S., and finally, what we as individuals and communities can do to protect ourselves and help combat the worst effects of wildfires. Enjoy. All right, I'm joined by senior fellow Carlos Gould. Carlos, it is so good to see you. Yeah, likewise, Brian. I'm really happy to be talking. And where are you today? I am in sunny San Diego. Sunny San Diego. All right, so good. So good to hear about that. We are in Gray, Michigan, on this end of the line, but uh, but here we are, and we are really excited to talk to you because you've been doing a lot of really important research. Um, since you left our program, and I'm sure before it as well, but really timely stuff. Um, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today. So we're speaking in, you know, mid to late October, typically the end, the tail end of wildfire season, uh, historically anyway, but that season and expectations have been shifting as most of us know. I know here in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where I'm at, we dealt with terrible air quality early in the summer from Eastern Canada's wildfires, something I've never experienced living in Michigan pretty much my whole life. So before we get into your research, can you just give us kind of an overview of why wildfires seem to be worsening and getting more unpredictable and kind of what stood out to you about the 2023 season so far? Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been very timely work in a way that in what we do, you never really hope happens. Um, But it does feel all the more important to be thinking about why wildfires are changing. And, And basically, we think that that's a combination of factors. Uh, partially, you know, human driven around policy, especially in North America driven about, you know, suppression, fire suppression, that has led to a lot of fuels that are on the ground. So there's just a lot more trees because we haven't been letting fires burn. Um, And a warming climate that has led to these fuels, again, thinking trees and woody biomass of of other sorts, uh, being drier and more flammable. And then it's another human problem, which is uh, more humans in this wildland urban interface that lead to, you know, greater probabilities of ignitions. And it's really led to, you know, bigger, uh, more frequent uh, wildfires, which has, of course, then led to lots of wildfire smoke. Um, and, and wildfires are really, really hard to predict. Um, 
and that makes it very challenging for informing public health about you know when and where to to be thinking about these things. Of course, they happen broadly uh, during a wildfire season, but you know wildfires are caused. Uh, a lot of them are caused by lightning strikes, which are as good as random. Um, and then, uh, you know, the other half of it is, is humans again, who are also fairly unpredictable. We know where they interface with the, with the wildlands at least, but you know, it, it's hard to know when and where a wildfire will start. And then for smoke, which is what uh, I've been studying a lot, a key part of the spread of wildfires and the wildfire smoke is the wind, which at any given moment is as good as random. So these are a lot of really random factors that go into this. And this year has been really remarkable for a couple of reasons. One is that this hasn't been really a function of fires in the Western U.S. Um, of course, uh, a lot of this has been driven by uh, Canadian fires. And so even though it's going to be, has probably been the worst wildfire smoke year on at least recent record, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a, a Western U.S. Uh, a derived problem. So that's very new and, and introduces difficulties for how to think about policy. Uh, but this year, the, 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 the facts have just been alarming. Um, on June 7th, my birthday, uh, we estimated that more than 60 million U.S. residents were exposed to at least 50 micrograms per cubic meter of wildfire smoke, uh, PM 2.5, the, the small particles. That's a fifth of us to wildfire-specific pollution five times larger than our air quality guidelines. And in New York City, uh, where, you know, I started my environmental health science career, uh, pollution levels were at more than 30 times our air quality guidelines. It's really alarming stuff. And so you were part of a large effort to review the research on health effects of wildfire smoke. And I think Myself included and people that live, uh, you know, east of the Mississippi or, um, you know, in these regions that don't really experience this. I know I had a lot of people around here that said I ride in a cycling club, for example, and people are like, well, we're still going to ride. And of course, me as an environmental journalist, I'm looking at the air quality map and thinking, well, I don't think I am. So I think there's just a lot of misgivings about um, what this actually does to us. So what do we know for sure about health effects and what is kind of still unknown? Yeah, well, we know that breathing in fine particulates, be they from cars, factories, cooking, dust, wildfires, it's not good for your health. Uh, we know it's especially bad if you inhale a lot of air pollution and you inhale it for a long time. So periods of like these, you know, New York City wildfires, uh, sorry, New York City wildfire smoke episodes, really high pollution levels that persisted for a couple of days. We know that that's going to be bad. And we know that it's bad for respiratory health in particular. And we can also, there's very strong evidence for detecting damages at this population scale for overall measures like all-cause mortality or total emergency department visits. We know those go up after wildfire smoke. We know also that there's been a lot of research on wildfire smoke, but a lot of it has been less clear beyond respiratory outcomes and these all-cause outcomes. There's an increasing body of evidence that suggests that there's negative impacts for wildfire smoke on pregnancy and birth outcomes. It could is probably through the smoke itself and also through maternal stress. There is a lot of evidence on uh, worsened mental health uh, during these episodes, uh, also other cognitive outcomes. There are associations with irritations to the skin and the eyes. There's evidence on cancer. 
But I think the biggest sort of outstanding question mark that everybody wants to know about is cardiovascular and, and cerebrovascular outcomes like stroke and heart attack, namely. And studies have shown really mixed signals, some positive uh, or you know better for health, some negative or worse for health, and sometimes no signal at all. And it's really hard to know exactly what explains that. Maybe it's that it, you know, wildfire smoke often happens in such a short period of time, nothing actually happens to your health. Maybe it's an inadequate study design. I'm going to really know. Uh, maybe it's something else. And in the study that we did ourselves, beyond summarizing the literature as I've, as I've just done, we also conducted a meta-analysis of really good studies that, uh, that estimated an association between a unit of wildfire-specific PM2.5 and uh, same-day outcomes all-cause mortality, which we saw went up by 1.5% per 10 micrograms per cubic meter. Again, for reference, earlier, people in New York were experiencing 300 micrograms per cubic meter. Uh, And also, we saw increases for respiratory-related emergency department visits, respiratory-related hospitalizations, really big effects. And we really didn't detect much statistically with cardiovascular outcomes. And so, you know, there are a lot, there's, there's a lot that's uncertain right now about what is and is not uh, happening with our health when we breathe in wildfire smoke. Uh, and I think a lot of outstanding questions about what explains what we see so far. So you mentioned emergency room visits, and you examined uh, ER visits during periods of high wildfire smoke and found that visits may increase during these kind of low to moderate smoke events, but may decline following extremely smoky days, which is, of course, not what we would expect. So can you talk about why this might be happening, especially on the decline in visits? Yeah, absolutely. This was a really uh, fascinating and and fun paper to work on because it started with, again, the, the... curve that you've described so far in us thinking, well, this can't be right. Uh, And then we kept digging. And I think a year later, uh, we finally had a story. And so here's here's what we think is happening. First off, breathing more wildfire smoke is not better for health than breathing less wildfire smoke. So that's not it. Uh, But what we do think is happening is that for a lot of people, wildfire smoke is salient. In other words, people know when it's happening, uh, either because it's in the news, because people report on it, or because they smell it, or they can see it, and people then change their behavior. Uh, And so what we think, again, the low to moderate events, people aren't necessarily changing their behavior a huge amount, at least not on aggregate. Uh, And so we see that, you know, uh, wildfire smoke uh, at low to moderate levels, again, kind of like that New York City, sorry, not that New York City range, like, you know, five to 10 micrograms per cubic meter, basically just a doubling of your air quality worsening. But those really extreme days, we think that people are changing their behavior in such a way that they're protecting themselves uh, either from the smoke or more likely protecting themselves from things where they may otherwise end up in the emergency department think they're staying at home so they're not driving. They're staying at home so they're not going to their pickup soccer game and rolling an ankle uh, and things of that nature. When we break it down by causes, it's these accidental injuries in particular and sort of generalized symptoms uh, that are declining, but the respiratory-related stuff is still going through the roof. And so for things that we think are really associated with wildfire smoke, respiratory in particular, 
those those rates are are really again increasing uh, tremendously, and it's these not so related to wildfire smoke directly that are declining. So of course, there's this complex nonlinearity that's happening uh, in the relationship. But it makes sense. It's locking us in our house when it's really bad. I mean, that that, that makes sense, like me not being out on my bicycle. On, uh, exactly. On it's hard to know, you know, exactly. You know, you you are happy riding your bicycle, I have to imagine. Uh, and so, you know, there there's all sorts of trade-offs here with uh, sort of broad, broad ways of thinking about, you know, public welfare. And you mentioned PM 2.5. And, and one of the main concerns of wildfire smoke is this particulate matter, this very fine particulate matter, small air pollution particles that are um, much smaller than a grain of sand that can penetrate deep into our lungs. So via the Clean Air Act, the U.S. has, for the most part, greatly reduced PM 2.5 levels via industry, traffic, things like that. However, you and colleagues found that this trend might be reversing a little bit and wildfires may be a culprit. So can you talk about this research and why it's concerning? Yeah, it, it is really remarkable, I think, what we're seeing. And, and this comes from two different uh, places. One is looking broadly at U.S. air quality and seeing that really we've, we've had tremendous uh, you know, improvements from the Clean Air Act, as, as you notice. But recently, trends in, and especially the Western U.S. have sort of stalled out. So if you just look at a plot of average, you know, PM 2.5 over the, uh, you know, by year over the last 20 years, you can almost see it flatten or, or even bend upward uh, following this decline. And, and so that's piece one where we're, you know, scratching our head trying to understand what's going on there. And then secondly, we had been developing, uh, we had worked uh, for a while on developing a wildfire-specific uh, PM 2.5 um, <clears throat> concentration map by day. And we were talking to reporters about it. And, and immediately we, we, you know, sort of, especially Marshall uh, and Marissa, who, who led the paper uh, that you described, we were trying to think like, uh, is this, you know, really reversing ambient air quality? Because we were, we were focused more on describing what the wildfire smoke was doing uh, in terms of exposures. Um, but it seemed like this really obvious question. And, and so, through a um, relatively simple analysis, uh, you know, we try to quantify basically the extent to which wildfire smoke was changing the trajectory of state-specific um, ambient PM 2.5 trends and uh, whether that trend had been reversed, uh, stagnated, or, uh, you know, no real change. And, and what we found is that you know, it, it had significantly slowed or reversed uh, in twenty in in two thirds of all of the U.S. states, um, and totally eroded twenty percent of all previous gains, uh, and over fifty percent in some of the some of the Western U.S. And so we fixed ambient air quality. I, I say fixed in air quotes. Uh, through the Clean Air Act, this amazing bipartisan piece of legislation. And, and now we're seeing another threat, and it's uh, hard to know, uh, you know, how we're going to be able to move forward on that. And of course, much harder to, to regulate through legislation because we're, we're not talking about tailpipes and uh, smokestacks anymore. We're talking about forest where somebody may not be kind of on the hook for that, um, which I'm sure makes us a much more complex 
uh, problem. And another, you know, another complexity of this is just getting information to people. Again, I, I use my own example of, of a place in the country where people were not used to wildfire smoke. I have a sister-in-law who was pregnant at the time who would go out on walks and runs and I would try to tell her, don't do that. But of course, she's trying to do the good thing and stay active. And I just think getting information to people is, is really challenging. So you and your team found that there are different responses among people, especially in kind of low-income communities um, compared to wealthier locations. And can you talk about these differences and how we might have a more equitable outreach um, and response? Yeah, this is it's such a conundrum and something that that, uh, you know, I think is is present across a lot of public health um, that information uh, and action often are are differing across uh, the wealth spectrum. And a lot of it, we think, is due to ability to respond. And so here, you know, what we see is through sort of proxy measures <clears throat> But in particular, you know, we think that, again, wildfire smoke is salient for everybody. Uh, everybody is aware that there's wildfire smoke in the air, um, at least on aggregate. Uh, of course, you know, in specific parts and specific events, maybe not so much. Um, but the difference is in these sort of close to taking action proxies. And so one that we did was we looked at the relationship between Google searches and uh, and, and wildfire smoke across varying wealth levels. And we saw that uh, searches for air purifiers and uh, filter and, you know, air quality improvement uh, devices differ, you know, were much higher in the wealthier communities and much lower in poorer communities, uh, suggesting that the wealthier communities are, are more able or more um, interested, capable, thinking about taking those kinds of protective actions. And the other thing that we saw was that a lot of people would stay at home uh, more when when there uh, when there's wildfire smoke in the air, but that wasn't the case in poor communities. And so here we see sort of two ways in which uh, we think that the, the response differs. One is perhaps an ability to take preventive or protective action. Or overall, that's what we're seeing, either through staying at home uh, or through uh, the purchase of goods. And so what do we do about it, of course, is the real question. Uh, and we think that, you know, we think that information really does matter a lot. Um, and trying to explain not just uh, that there's a problem, but how to how to do something about it. Of course, staying at home may not be an option for everybody, uh, but, you know, when you are at home protecting your respiratory health and, and your air quality to the extent that you can through even DIY air purifiers, I have one of those in my office, um, you know, <clears throat> keeping the windows closed, uh, and especially for those vulnerable communities you alluding uh, to your family member that's pregnant, that's who we really need to be protecting. And so I think local uh, local governments, you know, public libraries, I think, can be a great place for a providing clean air rooms uh, for those that are vulnerable and, and making them a, a gathering space the way in which some communities have done for uh, cooling centers during heat waves. The other option I think is loaning out air purifiers and making sure that they're in good working order to those uh, you know uh, that are vulnerable during wildfire season. I, I think that there's 
I think personally, there's a tremendous opportunity for, uh, you know, local communities and, and doctors to, as soon as, uh, uh, you know, somebody comes in and, and finds out that they're pregnant and, and, you know, they're excited about that, that we offer them a whole, you know, slew of environmental health exposure, you know, reducing technologies uh, that they think could be useful for their lives, you know, make sure that they're drinking clean water, make sure that they're breathing clean air and whatever way that we can improve, uh, you know, the welfare of those vulnerable communities, I think we should. So what's next for your research on this issue? You've seemed to hit it on a lot of different from kind of from impacts to, um, you know, who's who's searching um, for resources. You've kind of hit it on a lot of angles. What's next for you and what are you optimistic about in this space? Yeah, I I think that that's a great question. Uh, currently thinking about what happens when people are exposed to both high levels of wildfire smoke and high heat you know, uh, I just know my first summer here in, in California uh, got hit with a brutal heat wave and smoke wave, and it was just awful, and I had no idea what to do. And now I'm just thinking, you know, through all of what we've seen, it's hard to know what happens. How do you protect yourself when it's both really hot and you want to open your windows? Uh, but then it's really smoky and you let the smoke in. And it just feels like a mess uh, in a complicated web of nonlinearities in our understanding. And so that's something that I'm working on right now and trying to understand to what extent those kinds of hot and smoky days are changing over time and across space and what their impacts are on public health. I would say I am not... Uh, I, 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 that's not something that brings me great hope for the world because it's, it does not look great. Uh, I could put it that way. Um, but what I am hopeful for is that we're so much better now at understanding the health effects of wildfire smoke because of developments in, in better air quality monitoring and remote sensing and computational power. And that's leading us to have better estimates of who's exposed to wildfire smoke and, and how much. And I think that that's, you know, we're really at the beginning, I think, of, of really high quality health impact studies and, and quantification of future damages under a changing climate. And we hope that this means that we're going to be able to create responsible policies for controlling wildfires and protecting wildfire smoke, uh, you know, protecting the public from the from the impacts of that. So, Carlos, you mentioned kind of individual actions, um, you know, air purifiers and maybe even working with medical providers. I just want to give you one more opportunity to, to talk to people here. If people are worried about wildfire smoke, what are just some community individual actions we can take that you haven't mentioned yet? Yeah, we, we think about limiting the damages of wildfire smoke in three ways. Basically, first, you know, don't let health harming wildfires ignite. Uh, the second is uh, limiting the damages from already ignited wildfires. And the third is to limit the health harms from wildfire smoke. The The first two of those are going to be r real difficult uh, challenges. We need to slow climate change. Uh, we need to change incentives around building homes in the wildland urban interface and we need to work on, uh, you know, the, the century of accumulated fuels uh, in fire-prone areas. So for individuals and communities, working on that, it starts with voting. 
you know, these efforts are going to take decades and we need to work on people uh, as making sure that people in power are, are taking these issues seriously and fully considering all of their options. At the community and individual level, you know, it's conversations like this, you know, trying to explain, you know, you know, tell friends about the health impacts of, of wildfire smoke, you know, tell them that it's complicated and that, you know, we really do think it's bad, especially at high levels. And, you know, to protect the family members that are uh, pregnant or have chronic respiratory issues. And it's, I think, coming together as a community to prepare for the inevitable wildfire smoke that is going to come uh, in the same ways that, you know, folks that live in Florida might prepare for hurricanes or, or the same way that, you know, folks in, in the Southwest might prepare for heat waves. Uh, you know, these things are, are they're happening. They're happening more and more frequently and they're not, you know, they're bad for health. And I think the more that we can be prepared for the, the reality that we live with wildfire smoke, uh, and that it damages health, uh, I think the better off we're going to be. And so again, you know, it's, it's making sure that those that need to be protected have clean air to breathe, uh, when they need it. And, you know, we can build DIY air purifiers, uh, we can build them for our nearby elementary schools. Um, we, you know, we can make sure that they're, you know, smart about, uh, 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 protecting the, the health. Cause here's the thing. Current policy just says, Hey, if it's smoky, here's, here's what we got to tell you, you know, make sure that you're protecting yourself. And that's our, that's our stated public policy. Uh, and so the government isn't doing much to protect us right now. And, and as we alluded to earlier, it's a really difficult policy question because wildfires are often considered to be exceptional events and so aren't really regulated and the smoke travels so far. So it's really, it's coming together as individuals, as families, as communities, as, as neighbors, and making sure that when the situation is tough, that we all are, are breathing clean air. Carlos, thank you so much for helping us understand this. Um, keep up the good work. It was a big old pile of research you sent me in advance of this. So you've been, uh, you've been hard at work at this, and, and I really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brian. All right, that's a wrap. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us and browse around, get to know us, get to know our fellows. Ask us any questions you want, uh, podcast guests you want to hear, anything. We would love to hear from you. You can also find us on uh, X and Instagram, uh, any of those places. Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, And please download, rate, review, subscribe. This episode was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Venus Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Want to know a great way to stay up to date with us? Sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Have a great week, folks. 